Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive the daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, for free. My guest today is John Hoffman. John recently successfully defended his dissertation and is set to graduate from George Mason University in Washington in mid-May. His work focuses on political Islam and Middle East geopolitics and has been featured in numerous academic and policy-oriented platforms such as Middle East policy, foreign policy, and more. Our conversation will focus on the Gulf states and how they're using religion to further foreign policy and domestic objectives. John, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me. Now, in a recent article you wrote for Foreign Policy, you argue that moderate Islam has been effectively weaponized by the Gulf states, primarily Saudi Arabia and the UAE. You know, to Western ears, moderate Islam sounds like a pretty good idea. So before we get to how it is being used by these states, let me ask you what your understanding of moderate Islam is. Yeah, of course. You know, and absolutely on the surface, the promotion of, you know, so-called, quote unquote, moderate Islam sounds like a worthwhile venture. You know, all religious and political leaders should encourage moderation at the end of the day. However, moderate Islam has really turned into a big business in and of itself. And it's in many ways a continuation of this flawed dichotomy that emerged post 9-11 whereby the West, particularly the United States, um, has sought to categorize Muslims into baskets of what Mamdani refers to as good Muslims or bad Muslims. The Islam that's practiced by Arab autocrats and is presented to the West projected as, you know, quote unquote, good Islam, quote unquote, moderate Islam, and is designed to depict these governments as the best, perhaps only, partners capable of working with the West to combat quote-unquote bad Islam or quote-unquote extreme Islam. So this fixation on religion, on Islam, is meant to deflect attention away from the political, you know, the, the policies that these governments enact and how these policies serve as the underlying sources of instability in the region. And, it, you know, it's designed to keep the focus on religion, ex- exploit Western fears and misunderstandings of Islam, And, you know, this moderation, you know, what is moderation to Arab autocrats? It's an Islam that is politically quietest, one that's unwavering in its loyalty to established authority. Uh, These governments depict obedience to the ruler as a religious obligation and embrace an interpretation of Islam that is subservient to the state, incapable of challenging the legitimacy or the policies of these governments. This moderate Islam, you know, all forms of religious interpretation or practice that fall outside the authority of uh, the state are denounced as illegitimate, destabilizing, and ultimately threatening. Okay. And let me ask you now how it has been weaponized. And let's begin with Saudi Arabia and its de facto ruler, Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the this idea of moderate Islam promoted by Arab autocrats is part of the overall image or, you know, brands, if you want to call it that, 
that these actors project to international audiences, particularly the West, you know, and the United States, who remains their security guarantor. So, you know, this, uh, these images are a really critical tool of, of, of soft power, you know, the, coupling this with their, their tangible policies. And they're designed to absolve themselves of all culpability in human rights abuses and the destabilization of the Middle East while maintaining this support and money flow from, from the West. They present themselves as guarantors of religious and political tolerance, moderation, stability, and so on within the Middle East while depicting all alternative sources of religious or political authority as sources of intolerance and instability. Mohammed bin Salman, you know, is, is uh, one of the poster childs for doing this. Uh, he's vowed to return Saudi Arabia to quote-unquote moderate Islam as part of his efforts to present himself as this fundamental reformer and savior of Saudi Arabia. However, as, as is quite apparent, you know, religion is not being reformed within Saudi Arabia, it's just being repurposed to support MBS's drive for ultimate authority domestically. And, you know, his alleged promotion of moderation and reforms have been critical to his overall whitewashing efforts directed towards the West that he's used to cover up his repressive and aggressive policies. You know, because he's done things like opened up the country and brought men and women together and created opportunities for women in the work place uh he's he's limited the sound that uh, that the call to prayer makes at certain times and he's carried this all out in as you say the, what you would call a guise of moderate islam of of kind of curtailing what he sees he argues are the excesses of islam he's he's he's, he's certainly curtailed the uh, religious police what is this is this just a a, a kind of a a stratagem, a maneuver, a, a bit of a feint to impress the West that, yeah, he's he's actually, and this is the guy that ordered the killing of the journalist Jamal Hashoji, who in one day last year, I think it was, executed, executed 81 people. I mean, this is a guy you would not associate with moderate behavior, would you? No, no, absolutely not. There is nothing about Mohammed bin Salman that's moderate. And these actions, you know, whether it be allowing women to drive, whether it be, you know, these new concerts that are taking place within Saudi Arabia and, you know, all of these entertainment venues, this new neom and, you know, these new cities and the the new, you know, I forget the name of the big, you know, new square complex. It's like the Kaaba of capitalism this is what I, what I always refer to. Yeah, yeah, that's the new Meraba complex in downtown Riyadh that, uh, as you say, bears a startling resemblance to the Holy Kaaba in Mecca. Yeah, yeah. You know, these things are, you know, all outward facing. And, you know, they, he is ruthlessly repressive domestically. You know, it, like, you know, for women's rights, he still detains anybody who speaks out against, uh, you know, about women's rights. You know, you have, uh, I know you have Lena al on the on the show here pretty regularly. You know, her sister, you know, was detained for calling for these things that, MBS ultimately did, but it's this, it's this, this challenge to his authority that he despises. And, you know, he, he still regularly jails, you know, religious clerics, he still regularly jails any sort of dissidents. And it's not Wahhabism itself that's being reformed here. It's 
that religion is being repurposed towards this new nationalist project within Saudi Arabia. And it's, you know, it's this new nationalist project upon which Mohammed bin Salman seeks to cement his authority. And it's in this project that Islam is being repurposed towards his own personal interest. So we're not seeing a reform of Islam. We're seeing a reform of Saudi society, you know, state society relationships and things like that towards the interests of Mohammed bin Salman personally. And, and towards that end, I mean, he's really deconstructed the power and authority of the religious establishment, hasn't he? Yeah. So, so you know, traditionally it, within Saudi Arabia, it was, you know, this divide was never really so clear cut. You had the Al Saud who took care of political issues and then you had the Al Sheikh family who took care of uh, religious issues. You know, it on paper, you know, it, it says that, you know, in, in actuality, the Al Saud has always maintained the upper hand as the political you know overseers. But what Mohammed bin Salman is attempting to do is completely bring religious authority underneath his soul jurisdiction so whereas you typically had this it it was very rough but a, a very rough division of power we're seeing Muhammad bin Salman wanting to bring this under his sole jurisdiction let's look now at Muhammad bin Zayed who's the president of the UAE and the the ruler of Abu Dhabi now he's worked assiduously on another front which is interfaith dialogue and he's tossed that into the mix, and it dovetails very nicely with the moderate Islam strategy, doesn't it? How is the UAE baked interfaith dialogue into this into this strategy? No, absolutely. And I think, you know, Mohammed bin Zayed has been a little more savvy, a little more calculated than Mohammed bin Salman has with a lot of his policies. You know, MBS is, you know, rather young, he's kind of reckless. You know, but MBZ, you know, he kind of understands what's going on within the halls of Washington, and he really taps into this and, and is able to navigate it pretty masterfully. So it, in the efforts to brand themselves as moderate, the UAE and other governments such as Saudi or Egypt and so on have adopted this strategic usage of interfaith tolerance. In particular, they use outreach to Christian communities, Jewish communities, uh, in organizations and figures. And, you know, this has been very effective for, for these states. By framing their actions as in line with Western initiatives designed to protect religious freedom and encourage interfaith relations. These governments have, you know, received praise from across the political spectrum in the U.S., from religious groups all over the world. You know, the, Pope Francis was just in the UAE, I guess it was four years ago now. They've received praise from across the world for these actions. But at the end of the day, this engagement with other faith communities and leaders not only advances the image of these governments as tolerant and progressive actors, but also presents an opportunity for these states to project themselves internationally as the sole legitimate representatives of the global Muslim community. And that's what they want. They want the world to think that they speak for Islam, that the Islam is them. The curation of such an image is to designed to present these actors as a stabilizing force throughout the Middle East, uh, despite their repressive policies and their aggressive foreign policies that contribute to the underlying sources of instability within the region. So, you know, despite this image promoted, you know, by the Emirates, let's say, the UAE remains fiercely repressive at home and is one of the most interventionist states in the Middle East 
and has increasingly taking its malign behavior outside the Middle East, including into the West. I mean, they do a tremendous amount of illegal things within the United States here, for example. Yes, and, and it's interesting you, you speak about their uh, destabilizing efforts in the Middle East and North Africa because we see their influence in Sudan, in, in Libya, in Tunisia. Of course, they backed uh, the uh, Egyptians and CCS did the Saudis, but you know it's quite a pervasive approach that they've used. Absolutely. They've really taken this counter-revolutionary approach to every corner of the Middle East, you know, whether it be in Syria, whether it be in uh, Yemen, whether it be in Bahrain, and across North Africa, you know, into Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, down into Sudan, you know, it, it, every corner of the Middle East, you will find the UAE supporting anti-democratic actors. Now, in your paper, you call the Abraham Accords, uh, that saw the Israelis, uh, sorry, that saw the Emiratis and the Bahrainis recognize the state of Israel. Uh, Morocco and Sudan, of course, came on a little later, but uh, you, you call the Abraham Accords the crowning jewel of the interfaith initiative. Open that up for me, John. Yes, yes, of course. So the Abraham Accords, you know, this is, you know, or really their own can of worms. The Accords have been praised by, you know, more than any other initiative, have been praised by religious and political leaders throughout the West, including particularly in the United States. And, you know, the Abraham Accords have really emerged as an issue where there's bipartisan consensus in Washington, which is, you know, wildly rare these days. <laughs> but but it's something that really does bring together both sides of the political aisle. And the Accords have been presented as a mechanism for interreligious peace. However, despite this portrayal, there was never anything inherently religious about the accords. They're, they're 100% political. They're, they are a mechanism designed to preserve the interests of political elites within the Middle East. And, you know, the accords really represent the formalization of this coercive political, economic, and security order designed to maintain the status quo in the region. You know, it's, it's a top-down imposition designed to sideline Palestinians, sideline popular Arab opinion in order to push for this high-level quote-unquote normalization and the formalization of a more formal coalition through which these actors think they can maintain the status quo and through which Washington somehow thinks that it can advance its interest. But this order, you know, this this Abraham Accords order, if you will, uh, is an artificial construct. It, it is upheld only via intense exclusion, repression and surveillance and security guarantees from the world's preeminent superpower, the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, uh, it benefits the Emiratis and the Israelis, particularly. And I know that the Saudis MBS is looking on thinking, hey, I, I want to jump on board, but he can't do it yet because, you know, the Arab street is in support of the Palestinians. Overwhelmingly. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Not of the Israeli government and the Israeli regime that is being uh, you know, inflicted on on the Palestinians and has for so long denied them of their rights. But I want to move on now to another article you in which you explore the contradiction between states like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE embracing and promulgating interfaith tolerance and modern Islam, and what these states have done and are doing to support China's persecution and suppression of its Muslim Uyghur population. Expand on that for me, John. Absolutely. So, you know, these states, you know, Saudi, Egypt, UAE, they, they've really, and, and others, have 
really emerged as critical partners directly cooperating with China regarding uh, the repression of its Muslim population. Declarations of support, visits by high-level state officials and religious figures, and direct collaboration regarding the detention and deportation of exiled Uyghurs has, has really become commonplace. Growing ties with China are not solely because of economic and geopolitical interests. You know, I argue that this really needs to be situated within a broader religio-political context that's emerged in the Middle East post the Arab uprisings. And, you know, over the last decade, these counter-revolutionary and authoritarian actors have sought to really dominate religious discourse. It's the same thing with the moderate Islam approach. You know, they, they're promoting this state-controlled interpretation of Islam designed to discredit those who oppose their authority or the broader status quo. And this overlaps perfectly with what China is trying to do and its own repressive campaign designed to, quote unquote, sinicize Islam within China. And it, it's within this context that these autocrats have emerged as allies of Beijing, you know, it, as part of Beijing's efforts to also bring religion under the sole authority of the state. For China, of course, this means, you know, subservience to the uh, Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, it's the Chinese government really views the very, you know, Muslimness, if you want to use that term, of its Muslim minority as a security threat to its internity or internal cohesion that needs to be countered. And Middle East autocrats who have mastered repression under the guise of combating extremism or terrorism have emerged as really critical allies of Beijing in this effort. Mm. And what's interesting, when you look at Saudi Arabia, and as you quite right, Amir, Mohammed bin Salman went over to China and basically gave Xi Jinping uh, the green light on, on what uh, he was doing with the Uyghur population. But there you have it. I mean, Saudi Arabia, King Salman, the custodian of the two holiest shrines in Islam. I mean, how powerful is that when the de facto leader gives his stamp of approval? And, you know, earlier this year in January, there was a, a delegation of, I think it was uh, over 30 Islamic scholars from Saudi, UAE, Egypt, uh, Tunisia, a, a whole bunch of places went over to China and they did exactly that. They they praised, you know, what China's doing. They're saying, you know, oh, they're combating terrorism here. They're, they're respecting Islam here. And of course, we know that is the polar opposite of what's taking place. You know, these over a million Muslims within internment camps, efforts to forcefully, you know, sterilize, you know, the, the Muslim community through forced abortions, forced sterilizations and, and forced IUDs. These are draconian measures that are being taken place to eradicate a community. And you have states such as Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Egypt saying, oh, they're doing a great job. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and my guest, Middle East analyst John Hoffman, who's based in Washington, D.C. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. I want to move on, though, to how evangelical Christians view what is happening they're very much a part of this soft power project. And, and I was struck by the fact that despite Mohammed bin Salman having ordered the killing of Jamal Hashoji, despite his numerous human rights abuses, there you have it, evangelicals, you know, beating the path 
to meet with MBS and proclaiming him, you know, as a visionary in terms of this interfaith dialogue. Are they just being naive or is there something else going on here, John? Of course. So I don't think they're necessarily being naive as much as they're recognizing that actors such as MBS are central to the interests of certain segments of the evangelical community, namely closer relationships between these Arab states and Israel, you know, and they particularly want Riyadh, you know, to have closer relationships with Israel and their hope for eventual normalization. Segments of the evangelical community have been very outspoken in their support for MBS, despite many of his worst actions. I I, I did a, a, an article previously for Responsible Statecraft at the Quincy Institute that looked at a bunch of tweets uh, from evangelical leaders, you know, after the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, denouncing him as a terrorist, you know, a Muslim Brotherhood leader, you know, saying, oh, we need Mohammed bin Salman. We've been waiting for a leader like this in Saudi Arabia. The, the evangelical community, you know, certain segments of it, you know, not all of them, but uh, have been very outspoken in their support. And I think this needs to be situated within the broader context that many in the evangelical community want to see a continuation of U.S. deep engagement in the Middle East, n- namely as a support mechanism for Israel, and that actors such as MBS share this objective to keep the United States deeply engaged in the Middle East. And, you know, they view him as somebody that they can work with regarding, you know, pos- you know, stronger ties with Israel. And, you know, th- in my opinion, you know, it would boil down to that. Okay. Well, we've talked about the Abraham Accords, which was a great coup for the Trump administration. And he moved the needle. There's no question. A needle that had been frozen for decades. He moved it. And it was good for the Israelis, obviously, and the Emiratis and uh, and the Bahrainis. But Joe Biden, Joe Biden inherited it. And as you said, he is quite contented with it. So I, what to what degree is U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East shaped by what you call basically a political strategy and not a, a, a prime and praiseworthy example of interfaith dialogue? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, President Biden has embraced the accords, both publicly and in, in, in policy, you know, as have both parties in Congress. The Abraham Accords have really emerged rather rapidly as a new guidepost for U.S. Middle East policy. Regarding normalization, you know, ties between Israel and many of these Arab states had been years in the works. You know, the, the Abraham Accords, now it's on paper. Great. But this cooperation had already been ongoing because of their shared strategic objectives in the region. This initiative, you know, the the Abraham Accords are, you know, driven by political elites. So this is this is a a mechanism designed to advance the interests of political elites. Normalization in in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it's it's the end goal for what these are being used for, which is problematic. And this is very problematic from a U.S. policy perspective that by embracing the accords as our new guidepost for U.S. Middle East policy, we're pursuing a regional agenda that is designed to advance the interests of these local actors. These accords only serve the interests of Israeli political elites, Emirati political elites, you know, Bahraini political elites, you know, these do not serve the interests of, you know, the American people, but let alone the the people of the Middle East. So these accords are highly problematic. And, you know, what's worse is that many signatories of the accords and their supporters here, you know, within the Beltway 
are actively attempting to use the accords to press for further U.S. commitments to the Middle East and, you know, the protection of this unsustainable status quo. American commitment to the Middle East through the framework of the Abrahamic Accord or Abraham Accords is likely to fuel the widespread grievances that lead to instability in the region. These, you know, governments have no incentive to change their destabilizing behavior so long as the world's only superpower guarantees they can get away with it over and over and over. So I think Biden, you know, coming in after the accords is essentially doubling down on decades of counterproductive U.S. foreign policy in the region. Well, we've talked about this before, John. It's a kind of almost an admittance of the bankruptcy of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East that Joe Biden would inherit, would take on board the Abraham Accords and so willingly and easily embrace it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I get this question a lot, you know, about the Abraham Accords, you know, people saying, well, it, oh, isn't normalization good? You know, you know, what are we supposed to do? And from a U.S. policy perspective, this engagement between these actors had been going on for years behind the scenes. You know, normalization in and of itself, that's the business of of these states, you know, but from a U.S. policy perspective, this should in no way, shape or form be a guidepost for U.S. foreign policy, nor, you know, and definitely should not be the launching pad for U.S., more U.S. commitments to the Middle East, because what we're doing is just formally committing to this unsustainable status quo, which was developed in large part by our own making. Mm. Okay, now, finally, John, Moderate Islam, interfaith dialogue as soft power strategies, well, they're working pretty well for authoritarian regimes. I wonder, is there a strategy to counter this, uh, the, the, these, these soft power uh, successes and, and to challenge them effectively? Is there a strategy, John? So I, I get this question a lot from, uh, you know, academics and policymakers, you know, it, it, this, it's interesting because this comes up and they're like, it's like, oh, well, thank you for highlighting all of this. But now what do we do? Um, and, you know, it, it's I don't think there's really a clear cut strategy to counter these efforts, aside from recognizing how these initiatives are being used for strategic purposes. Whenever I talk to policymakers or others about, you know, interfaith initiatives, you can never get inside somebody's head. You can never measure sincerity. You know, may, maybe these are being pursued by certain individuals, you know, for the utmost greatest purposes. But to recognize and to attribute strategic thinking by different actors, you know, is not to question sincerity necessarily. You know, we can look at outcomes. We can look at how religion is being coupled with tangible policies. You know, we can, we can look at that with while sidestepping the question of sincerity or anything like that, because we're looking at these tangible outcomes. For actors such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE, as I detail in the foreign policy article, these initiatives are occurring parallel to incredibly repressive and aggressive domestic and foreign policies. Additionally, while honing in on the actions of extremist actors, you know, who represent something like 0.00001% of the population, this is designed to detract and neglect from the grievances of the masses and the everyday struggles of people within the Middle East. So my suggestions, you know, on how to counter these is to recognize how these initiatives are being used, recognize how 
your engagement in these initiatives or the various events held by many of these parties, recognize how you're being used, you know, by, by participating in these, even if everyone has fully genuine and sincere intentions, recognize how this is going to play out at the end of the end of the day and be coupled with tangible policies. We need to challenge these discourses and narratives. You know, you know, how can you preach such narratives when they're coupled with tangible policies that do the exact opposite of what you're saying? I think we also need to shift attention away from the religious and towards the political. You know, how the policies of these actors and how our support for these actors and their policies are really the root of the problem. This isn't an inherent, these aren't inherently religious issues. These are inherently political issues. And I think once we are able to sift through the discourses being promoted by, you know, actors that have a vested interest in this, that's when we'll be able to challenge this from a stronger footing. Fascinating, John. Thanks. Thanks so much. No, of course, Bill. Thank you for having me on. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was John Hoffman. John is an analyst whose work focuses on political Islam and Middle East geopolitics. Since we launched our podcast three years ago, it's been listened to nearly 140,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, and brilliant young contributors like John. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Our regular listeners will have noticed that we've moved the podcast to midweek and we'll be putting it out on Wednesdays from now on. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.